Welcome to the Rad Awakenings Podcast. I'm Kay He. When was the last time you became aware of something deep, provocative, and uncomfortable? In these moments, we level up in our work, our creativity, and most importantly, in our own heads. Each episode, our guests will describe their Rad Awakenings. The conversations are real, raw, and will share in both struggle and joy. Today's guest is Bart Lorang, the founder and CEO of Full Contact. We're lucky Bart didn't cancel on us because a few weeks ago, he delivered their second child at 2 a.m. in the bathroom of his home. Congratulations. Today, Full Contact has 250 employees, many offices across the world, and has raised almost $50 million in funding. It is a true high-growth venture-backed company. So I really wanted to get into the never-ending debate about work-life balance with Bart. I genuinely wanted to know how he balances self-care, spending time with his two young kids, all while being a devoted father, and if he expects the same of his employees. Bart drops amazing CEO wisdom on how empathy can be learned, how a team's self-awareness can thwart your fight-or-flight reflex, and how your culture is meaningless if it doesn't terrify some people. And we talk about the greatest employee perk I've ever heard of, paying employees 7500 bucks to take a vacation. Finally, we talk about control, or should I say, the illusion of control. Bart's come to accept that he may be just one instance in a gigantic multiverse of deterministic paths. So what does that mean for his quarterly forecasting? Today's episode is sponsored by Skillshare. When I left my corporate job to try my hand as an entrepreneur, I was truly jumping into the unknown. I knew nothing about blogging, podcasts, and digital marketing, and fumbled my way through learning how to build my own business. I wish in those early days that I had access to Skillshare. Skillshare is an online learning community with over 16,000 classes in business, marketing, and more. I'm currently taking the Modern Marketing Workshop with Seth Godin and Simon Sinek's class on Presentation Essentials. Classes are completely flexible, great for the professional or freelancer looking to brand themselves and grow their business. And best of all, you get unlimited access to all of this for a low monthly price. Never pay per class again. Skillshare is giving the Rad Awakenings listeners a month of unlimited access, absolutely free. Go to Skillshare.com slash rad. That's Skillshare.com slash R-A-D to redeem your free month. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the podcast. Today's guest is Bart Lorang, the CEO and founder of Full Contact. How's it going, Bart? I'm doing great, Kay. How are you? I am doing really well. Well, I'd love to start with giving our listeners just a little bit about the the origin story of Full Contact. It's sort of an interesting story. I had just sort of exited my last venture and uh, I had gone, I said, you know what, well, I want to go to the grad school and see what this MBA thing is about after being a lifelong entrepreneur. And as one does in grad school, I met a girl and we started dating. And, uh, you know, one night I was looking at her Outlook contacts. Uh, I don't know why I was looking at her Outlook contacts. I don't really recall the details there, but her Outlook contacts were amazing. Uh, Sarah, uh, who's now my wife, her contacts were incredible. Like she had perfect contacting photos, first name, last name, addresses, fax numbers, kids' names, spouses' names, anniversary dates, you know, the kids' birthdays, what she got them for presents, detailed notes. I was just astonished. Uh, You can just imagine these perfectly full contact records. All manually inputted. 
all manually input. She was just OCD about this stuff, right? And, you know, I asked her, you know, why is she so OCD about this? And, you know, she was in the luxury hospitality business for 15 years or so where, you know, she worked for the Four Seasons and the Five Star Hospitality. And understanding people and actually having detailed notes about people is incredibly important to her job and sort of that emotional anticipation and that service mentality. So she worked with a lot of celebrities at the Four Seasons. She had a lot of data about different celebrities, which was fascinating. And I was just really envious of this because I, you know, at the time, I think I had five or th- 6,000 contacts accrued over a lifetime traveling the world and meeting different people. And I said, I want my contacts to look like that. And, and frankly, every business I've started, we've struggled with having great data about, heck, our customers, our leads, our prospects, who the organization knows. And it's always a hard mess. And you're always like, well, let's dump it to a spreadsheet and clean it up and maybe send some invites out to an event we're throwing. It's just a really nasty problem. I know that you're a kind of a productivity geek guru, GTD guy. So what was your system? Because this is a pain point for a lot of uh, our listeners, and, and it's a very personal pain point. I honestly didn't have a system, right? It was like maybe I'd have an assistant look at it every few months, right, which is not efficient. Nobody likes that. But like at scale, once you get past 5,000, like you, good luck. didn't have a good system is the point. And this was six years, seven years ago, so the landscape was a little bit different. And so, anyways, I kind of thought about this, and the entrepreneur in me says, you know, this is a really hard problem. I've got this problem in every business I've, I've ever worked with or started or you know, consulted for has had this problem. And it's a really hard math problem, actually. Like, at the end of the day, it's like this really delicious, nasty identity resolution probability problem. And I was super attracted to all these things. And I was like, I need to start a company around this. And Sarah was just like, oh, you're a nerd. I like that about you, but you're a nerd. Like, I don't know if there's really a market here. Like, and I'm like, yeah, but I think there's something. So I started uh, the company and it was initially called a Rainmaker and uh, built a prototype. And the prototype is extremely well received. We're on the front page of Lifehacker for three straight days. And uh, I knew that there was demand and there's a lot of people like me you know, out there. I also did some research, some primary research during grad school to supplement my hunch. But yeah, it's just this hard problem. So that's that's how I got started. So you know, as usual, my wife takes all the credit. Uh, all behind uh, every great idea is an amazing woman, right? There's a quote that goes something like that. Yep, exactly. Because so much of your company's mission is around kind of the softer side of human connectivity. When you dig back into your life broadly, where does that connectivity surface? Where have you seen it at play? When we first started the business, it was me and my co-founder really centered on the engineering problem, the difficulty of the problem, right? Like, oh, this is a really hard problem. Let's prove how smart we are by solving it. But it wasn't until a couple of years into the business that I had to go deeper and explore my past and understand my why. Like, why did I care so much about contact data and connecting with people? Uh, and which is really what contact data is for. And I realized that as a child, I grew up in rural Montana. And in rural Montana in the 80s, let's say that being a computer programmer was not very normal. My friends might be hunting and fishing, and I would be coding a Commodore 64 and writing games. And, you know, that created some distance between me and other you know, people in my school. It created distance between me and 
you know, my family. And I always felt like an outsider and I didn't necessarily feel like I had great connection. One person I felt I did have great connection with was my grandmother, Dort Lorang, who was this incredibly extroverted person who just, you know, the whole town showed up at her funeral and literally like as everybody knew her and she was just amazing. And then I realized that what I was really seeking, and I tell a lot of entrepreneurs this, is I was trying to fix a problem an earlier version of my DNA had, meaning me as a child, like trying to help that child and that teenager <laughs> you know, connect with people. And contacts were a vehicle to do that. And, I, and then I also realized in that same moment, that's why I was so attracted to my wife as a human, because she's naturally connective with people with high level of emotional intelligence. So I realized the company's purpose and mission was actually about you know making relationships better. And contacts were just a, simply a vehicle to do that. Wow. That's incredible. Thank you. Thank you for sharing that. There, there's, I have chills because, um, and I know you're a Jerry Colonna disciple, fan, friend, so we could take this in a lot of directions. Just on the contact side, the one thing that I want to share when I use, and again, this is completely unsponsored. This is just my use of the product. I have tags that I use for all my contacts and they're called superpowers. And they could be, I usually use crazy and then something. So crazy smart, for example, <laughs> could be, you know, that person who just knows there's like walking Jeopardy, Trivial Pursuit and uh, PhD and all like topics. You know, that person at the party, totally. that, that's that person. There's, I think there's 13 of them in my network. Then there's uh, another tag I use. I love is Wanderlust. You know, people who love to travel. Uh, I just have like crazy creative, you know, people who just like com consistently surprise me with how creative they are. I, I'm not one of those. And I have found so much joy in my life has come from pairing those people with shared superpowers. And it's just been magical. The only one that you have to be very careful with is the crazy smarts because they're almost like too smart for their own good sometimes. But every other group, everything kind of melts away, whether you're a lawyer or uh, you know in your 50s or in your 20s, if you have that love for travel, you will, you know, you'll be like, oh, well, what, what hostel did you stay at in Bangkok? And from that question, a friendship will emerge. Yeah, so it sounds like you have a passion around connecting people too in a slightly different way. Mm -hmm, yeah. The listeners know my story, so I'll, I'll, I'll shift it back to yours, uh, And but I, I'll pick that thread up later. W one question I had for you, though, is that kind of outsider status feeling as you pushed out of high school or childhood into college, into work, how did you start to engage with that feeling? I was an entrepreneur, so I had to push myself past it and sort of just get over it and, and it manifests itself maybe in, in different ways. So I, I joked that basically during my twenties, I was just selling, right? I was on the road 310 days a year, literally for 10 years, engaged my business, working with clients, getting to know clients, you know, selling, marketing, establishing relationships. You know, when I was at home for a very few days a week, I'd be dating and going to going to bars and, and trying to pick up the fairer sex. And I was practicing the sale, the art of sales, you know, basically the human connection, just volumes and volumes of it. And, uh, you know, maybe a lot of, you know, burnt relationships uh, because I wasn't particularly emotionally intelligent. And I didn't even understand that as a concept, right? Like, like I was just just an arrogant confident, too smart for my own good, not humble, like 
person. I would want to shake that person. Uh, I was just very brash. You're not alone. I think most of our listeners want to shake their 20-year-old selves. Yeah, I was not awesome with people. Let's let's put it that way. <laughs> was there kind of a tipping point or a sh- mindset shift that where where you started to kind of break free from that? Yeah, I think so. I think uh, it was all around the same time of like just exiting my last business where I just had a you know very very confrontational falling out with my business partner. And I then I you know exited that business and just kind of said, well, what am I going to do next? And I went to grad school, and my grad school where my wife Sarah was at. They were heavy, heavy, heavy the first like six weeks on this thing called leadership intelligence and emotional intelligence. I had never been exposed to any of this stuff before. I didn't take psychology in, in college. I took computer science. So it was like, whoa, there's all these principles. And I realized how bad me and my partner and the culture we created both between ourselves and our company in terms of we were like emotional idiots. And so that sort of triggered this whole like transformation, basically. Wow. Do you think that uh, empathy can be learned? Yes, because I've learned how to develop that muscle. That, because that's a raging debate that I have with some people who listen to this podcast. Can you give an example of a, a practice that may have helped you learn to be more empathetic? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, well, I think empathy actually starts with understanding oneself and understanding and actually internalizing and vocalizing or naming what's actually going on with you because you do, if you can't actually identify the emotional stuff that's going on with you you will not have zero chance of of others so i've become a huge practicer of uh, daily meditation and the other thing i add to it is this concept of green yellow red where i i say basically like and this is from jerry but where are you at where's your body where's your breathing where are you actually as a human being are you in a green state? Are you present? Are you calm? Are you comfortable with the world? Are you red, meaning are you in a triggered physical and emotional state? Is something just keeping you from being present? Are you just sort of in this lizard brain survival mode? Or are you somewhere in between, right, the yellow state? And actually vocalizing that and naming that for yourself is really interesting to check in with yourself. And what I do in my leadership meetings and any meeting I really attend is check in with folks and say, Green, yellow, red, where are you at? And then I go as the leader first and name it, and then they name it where they're at. And then you actually start to realize all these different stories after you've heard hundreds and thousands, all these themes that come up, right? Where people are, oh, my mother-in-law's in town, and she's very judgmental, and so I'm in a red state, you know, or, or things like that. And then you actually just learn, as you actually start becoming self-caring, you can learn to then care about others, very powerful. I had read about it briefly, but I never, it kind of flew over my head. When you do that red, green, yellow check-in with yourself, is that daily? Oh yeah. I mean, it's multiple times a day. And do you actually write it down? I don't write it down anymore. Uh, I know that some of the folks uh, that have developed this practice in our company have started writing it down because they just, they found it interesting data to analyze, but I just sort of, it's moment to moment. You know, certainly in the morning I check in Certainly a few times on the bus ride in, I check in sort of before a maybe a more challenging conversation as one has in the CEO seat. Often you check in with yourself, you know, just say, okay, where am I? So I'm totally green right now. It's Friday. I feel very calm right now. I'm very relaxed and at peace with everything in my universe. Very cool. I was red this morning 
because I've uh, just, we have a 10, our second child is a 10 weeks old. And so I have not, and this is something that I want to talk with, with you about just kind of family and balancing things, but I have not kind of reset my expectations for myself in light of a significant life change. And combined with lack of sleep, I've been in yellow and red because there is that disconnect where I'm just not willing to say, you have this multi-hour per day. That sounds so crass, but you know what I mean. You have this multi-hour per day new responsibility, yet you're, you are unwilling to remove anything even close to that number of hours from your workflow. And it's, it's, you're stuck at red. You're stuck at red or yellow. But then again, it's like it's very micro because uh, and then I was yellow because I always get, you know, comfortably nervous before each podcast. And then as they start to kind of gather momentum, then I like shift into green. So now I'm like flowy green. We're, we're both flowy green. And actually, that's funny because I have a 10 week old as well. Oh, wow. Second kid then. Yeah. Second child. Yeah. Which is a little different than first for sure. Oh, no, this, the 10 week old is my second. So, wow. Congratulations. How old is your eldest? Three years old. Three years old. There's a, there's a good amount of blogging about uh, it's Grayson. And then your little one is uh, unknown to the blogosphere, to my knowledge. <laughs> yeah, she's going to get a story soon because there's actually a funny, amazing story about her birth. You know, the punchline is I, I delivered her on my bathroom floor at two in the morning with my own hands. Oh, my God. Yeah, we are from Boulder, but we're not. I, I was going to say, you're in a pretty progressive part of town. So Yeah, but my, my wife's water broke, and literally three minutes later, uh, she's having a baby. Totally unexpected. And uh, it's crazy. So I'm, I'm actually the attending physician on her birth certificate. <laughs> that is incredible. Were you red, green, or yellow during that? Well, I'm sure I was. I was red, but it was so fast that instincts take over in terms of catching and absorbing, and just like you know, making sure she's breathing and you know, wrapping, the, unwrapping the tube and all that stuff. Uh, but I was certainly red, but like, and so was my wife, obviously. But then the adrenaline just takes over, and biology just takes over. Wow! And so then you're cradling this newborn in your bathroom in the middle of the night, and then what happens? My parents had just shown up because we, we had called them and said, hey, we're going to probably go to the hospital soon, so can you take care of Grayson? And then uh, so my dad walks in, and he hears a baby crying. He says, what the heck is going on? And so we're like, I'm like, call 911. We have a baby. So the ambulance shows up three or four minutes later with you know, firemen and paramedics coming in, and they hand me a sick apple, and you know, I cut the cord, and you know, I'll do all that stuff. So it was a crazy, weird, surreal thing. Oh my God, I have so much like chills running through my body because just just being there in the safe confines of a hospital room is pretty mind blowing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And so, you know, going to the hospital and our doctor shows up, ah, uh, this wasn't the plan. We're like, sorry. Wow. Congrats to you. I, I would use a shameless plug that like maybe your meditation practice helped you navigate that, but I, w- I won't even I won't even go there. I guess I did want to ask you because you, you write about this a lot and you appear to be very family focused um, on your on your wife and on your on your kids in a very kind of uh, deliberate way but at the same time just give us a few kind of metrics about the company you know like number of employees or offices uh, just so we can kind of paint the picture yeah so I mean I think we're we're 250 employees on uh, three continents I think four or five official offices something like that. And, you know, we're adding a, a couple more here in the next six months. 
you know, it's a twenty four seven operation around the globe. And you have, um, if it's public, raised a decent amount of venture capital. Yeah, we've raised close to fifty million. And so I want to ask you because this this conversation seems to flare up on Twitter in in. I would say among tech bro Twitter every three months, and then all these people get roped into it, but it is around, can you lead a thriving, successful venture-backed company without making huge sacrifices in words that you use, self-care, family, sleep, and all that? And it really kind of riles people up on both sides of the spectrum uh, to the point that I have to stop reading it sometimes. But I'd love to get one CEO's take on this timeless debate. So the short answer is that there for sure are sacrifices you have to make and you have to make it intentionally with your life partner, whoever that is. And uh, my wife has been unbelievably supportive, but you know, I'm not the 30, 35 hour a week, you know, engineer in big co that kind of just, you know, it's always available and not traveling and that sort of thing. So I believe in work-life integration rather than work-life balance. I just don't like the word balance because it's, it connotes that it's going to be equilibrium, which is never the case. I bring myself, my personal stuff to work and I bring my work stuff home. And I have a partner that's engaged in that. And I have a leadership team that we talk about our home life a lot and what's going on there. And that way, if you vocalize it, you're actually able to accommodate and support each other in times of particular stress. And so I actually think that's a that approach works for me. Some people like to separate church and state. I, I just think in today's world, that's really challenging to do. When you say um, certain sacrifices, you know, implicit in kind of family, to the extent that you're comfortable sharing, what are some of those sacrifices? And, and I'd, I'd gladly share mine. So, you know, I, I start my day at like five in the morning and, you know, I get to the office around seven-ish. Most nights I get home six to seven. So you're talking about a 12 to 14 hour day. So one of the metrics me and my wife use is how many times do we have dinner at 6.30, right, with the whole family? And it's not seven days a week. It's more like two or three. So that's a sacrifice I'm certainly making. Uh, I guess my kids uh, are probably later on the spectrum of going to bed. Like my son Grayson goes to bed at 9, 9.30, 10. And a lot of parents are like, oh, 7 p.m. We're not that because they want time with me. And then, you know, you just have to dramatically remove the things you're doing. So my life is literally work and family and there's very little time for me hanging out with my friends as a parent it's hard to do anyways but like going to concerts and things like that and my wife and i said you know what these five or six years when the kids are little uh really little that's the time to go build a billion dollar business you know and let's not do it when they're six seven eight nine ten years old those are really extraordinarily special and excruciating at the same time <laughs> but uh those are some of the sacrifices we've made. I just don't have much of a personal life. When you put self-care, because you know, you've talked about meditating, it seems like it's the, just in general, it's important to you. If you're short on self-care, do you have a heuristic from which bucket you would take from? 
Wow. Uh, let me rephrase that question. Are you asking uh, where, uh, where do I route the... Uh... Route the, uh, the excess. Meaning for me, sometimes there's a very conscious trade-off where I could go home and be home 20 minutes early or I could meditate in my office. And it's a very, it's crystal clear, self-care or kid. Yeah. And so, you know, I, I actually, sadly, it's pretty clear to me that my family takes the brunt of that. And unfortunately, I'm trying to flip that over to work, but I still am not there. So, you know, I need an hour to myself every morning and even on the weekends. And I literally, we've, it's a metric we track as a family. Does Bart get his one hour alone and uh, I eat into the family time because I need that. Not that you ask my opinion. With my coach, a lot of what she reminds me is if you don't, you cannot give that which you don't have. So I might actually be hurting all parties by running home and, and ditching the meditation. It doesn't feel like it because, uh, you know, my, my wife's like, thank God you're home. <laughs> it's like, here, take the kid. And like, uh, then we want to hear about the day. But at the same time, then then it, you, you build in these these um, little pockets uh, of resentment or whatever. But you framed it as kind of the sacrifice during this phase and then kind of reap the reward. You didn't say it that way, but um, kind of later as the kids are older. Personally, I have inverted that. And clearly, there's no right or wrong answer in this. <laughs> um, but but I, I thought I'd share my thing because we are since eerily similar phases of life in some regards, where it's just like this kind of this is when they physically need you the most. And and then I you know I have two girls, so I'm like by the time they're at 13, like they probably won't even want to see. I, I've like joked with people, I'll go get a corporate job when 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 my girls are in their teens because they won't want me at home anyway. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's funny. And you know, my wife were very intentional about it. There's a lot of folks that have way more external help, and my wife wa- really, really is very engaged with the kids like now, and uh, we're fortunate to be able to do that. So we said, "Hey, we're going to make this trade off," and uh, you know, it's worked out so far. But um, you know, my hope is that uh, you know, as the company scales and continues to scale, right? There's things that are magical in the CEO job that you your job becomes less about doing and more about being. Explain, what do you mean by that? Well, I mean, as an entrepreneur, right, um, you know, when you get up off the ground, like you're wearing, what, 19,000 hats, right? And uh, you're you're doing stuff and you're making things happen and your whole identity and, and sense of self-worth is being able to do things. And then once, you, once you've built the machine that builds the product and sells the product and you've built this crazy thing that just hums along, and you, you consider yourself an organization builder, all of a sudden, like, you realize that as a CEO, you're probably disrupting things if you walk around and stick your finger in different pieces of machinery. <laughs> you're actually screwing things up and throwing wrenches in the process. And so the three things, I believe, uh, that are the job of the CEO is set and hold the vision, make sure it's understood, build, manage, and retain a great team, and make sure that they, everybody understands their job, and three, make sure everybody has the resources, the people, the clarity, the money to succeed. And if you can do, do those three things, it sounds incredibly simple, but incredibly hard. You're not doing much. And in terms of uh, the vision, where would, because you write and talk a lot about culture, where does culture and your specific role in setting the culture, how does that play out? 
Yeah, I mean, that's it's it's possibly the most important thing that you can work on as the leader. And it requires incredible honesty with oneself about what the type of culture you actually have, sort of the, maybe the accidental culture. And then what are the elements that are aspirational and what are the elements that are perspirational? So I find that you have to really keep thinking about the values that you're trying to hire for, reward for, recognize for, and you have to model those yourself and you have to live that daily, like 100% of the time, which is really challenging. But if it doesn't come from the founder, the top, it doesn't matter. It's just something you're saying, but not actually reinforcing. So we recognize based upon values. We talk about them constantly. We tell stories about them. We grade ourselves on how well we're living the values. Every employee is graded on the values, right? Um, and how, how frequently they're exhibiting them or not. And uh, culture scales, right? That, that scales like organizationally and across, frankly, our values scale across country lines and real, you know, country lines. I've got people in Texas, India, Latvia. I mean, these are places that naturally wouldn't necessarily understand one another. But values, the human values certainly scale. In thinking about the way you described your workday and the sacrifices that you've made, how does that translate into the expectation that you have in the culture, right? So if I'm, you know, considering applying for a job at full contact and I hear that the CEO spends, you know, works 12 to 14 hours a day. At, at what point am I expected to do that? How does that work ethic c- kind of uh, percolate down to the, through the organization? Well, we've actually got a value for it called we've got grit. Okay. And so, you know, there's people that say, you know what, that's not for me. That culture is not for me. And I want to have complete work life sort of, you know, uh, you know, independence, and I don't want that to invade in, in in any way, shape, or form. And then there's people who are like, you know what? I'm a really hard worker, and I actually appreciate a CEO who actually brings his personal stuff to work and brings his work stuff home, and like that's okay because that's who I am, and I love the integration concept. There's people who are fearful of it. That's not for full contact. And so I, what I find is that you got to try to create a culture that's kind of like from being from Mars, and it should terrify some people. When they think about it, and if you don't terrify some people, that you don't have a strong enough corporate culture, and then because that corporate culture is going to attract the exact right person. That's interesting. I never thought about it. So it's almost the extremes will show what you're true, what you truly stand for. Us, you're just kind of muddling in the middle. That's right. That's right. You don't want to be have these bland corporate values that stand for nothing. You know, that's probably what most Fortune five thousand companies. <laughs> they, they wash it down so much that it's meaningless. One thing I'd love to ask you about, which is when I said a, I made a joke about applying to, to full contact, is your paid, paid vacation. Could you share with our listeners what that entails? <laughs> yeah, so we came up with paid, paid vacation in uh, 2012. And it was this concept I'd been fiddling around with for like 10 years of, like we, we literally pay our employees a stipend on top of their existing paid vacation time of 7500 US dollars for when they go on vacation once a year. And the rules are you have to go on vacation to get the money. You have to go off grid and disconnect and you can't work at all while you're on vacation. That's it. And so I, we created it because I was so bad about letting 
work invade vacations and not being present and fully connected with my loved ones or my friends or whomever, um, that literally I had to create a rule for myself and also a rule for everybody else to enforce this. And it is something also that I noticed a lot is that a lot of families fight and stress out about money while they're on vacation, right? Like you're in Mexico and you're drinking $19 margaritas at the pool and you're spending a way more money than you would when you're at home. So I wanted to relieve that burden. And so we, 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 we unveiled it and we got international press and still do for the last five years. It's been very transformational. There's this famous picture of me with my wife, Sarah, on a camel at the pyramids checking my iPhone. And this, that was me, you know, it's just like, and I realized I had to make a change. I got to admit, when I first read that, I, I said to myself, that is the best PR move I've ever seen. Because I mean, look at we're talking about it uh, now five years later. And my second question, and again, if I'm being too intrusive, um, $7,500 could be a meaningful percentage of someone's compensation on top of the time element of vacation. But let's put that to the side. It's a, it's a financial, it's a significant financial commitment for, or is it a f- significant financial commitment? Yeah, it sure is. But I mean, you know, at the end of the day, you just build it into your comp models as you scale. I've heard from everybody, oh, you're, that's not scalable. I'm like, why not? Why not? Uh, <laughs> I mean, I could budget a $7,500 bonus for everybody. Okay, same diff. Same diff. Uh, but, it is, but it is certainly significant and people definitely appreciate it. You're a quantitative guy. Have you tried to quantify the effects of it? Other than anecdote, I'm sure the anecdotes are phenomenal. I've quantified the anecdotes. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, you know, here's what I've what I've observed over hundreds and hundreds of these things over the years is the the median amount of time it takes people to really come off the digital heroin that is these devices and social media and the attention economy is about 72 hours. I interview everybody and I say, well, you know, when what day of your vacation did you? really wake up to the world and they're like 72 hours. So it's, it's almost like a heroin detox. Personally, I would have said it's a little longer for me, but, uh, but that makes sense. Sometimes I can calibrate and I know when I'm not reaching for my phone, sort of in a ghosting, like where's the, I, like I lost a limb. <laughs> if I know if it's like four or five days before I wake up, I'm like, whoa, I, I, that was long overdue. And uh, I can calibrate based upon my own experience. Two is, we actually find that our processes and our systems have gotten better because everybody is required to leave. So, you know, and this is not a new concept in the financial industry. They, they actually force, the auditors force everybody to take a forced vacation because what you find is that fraud exists in pockets where something weird's going on. So what, what happens is people document processes and then they realize that, oh, I can actually document this and my teammates can take care of it. That's an incredibly liberating feeling, especially in a technology scale-up environment where everybody feels like they're the hero. And so I've also recognized um, a lot of folks are incredibly anxious going on vacation because their whole sense of self-worth is tied up in their job. And so for them to start getting used to it and then the feedback they get from their family when they're like, it was so amazing having dad or mom not on conference calls, not checking email on vacation and being present. Like the tears that come to people's eyes when they realize what an asshole they've been the last 10 years are just, uh, are just overwhelming. So I can quantify the earned media of it, which is in the 
eight figures. Uh, but 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 the actual lives we're touching and allowing back to that theme of why the company exists to connect people and drive relationships that is incredibly gratifying. That's incredible, and and I think one thing that I always want. I mean, I came from finance, and just a, a, an asterisk on your story is that it's if you touch securities then you have to take two weeks off. But if you're an advisory, like a banker, you don't get two weeks off. And so unfortunately <laughs> for me, I was never in the side of the business. But the, even then, uh, anyway, different story, but people would still get a lot, a lot of anxiety and some would cheat, But um, which is probably against the law. But anyway, but the thing that, that is cool about the way that you're doing it, because they're, they're, I, I've looked at uh, just out of curiosity, all the different vacation, you know, no vacation policy and things like that. You create confusing social norms where you, when if you have just an open-ended vacation policy where you know someone would feel guilty taking four weeks because the person next to them takes one day where someone else might take six months and and you just kind of there's you cloud the intention with these like weird human behaviors <laughs> But here it's just like it's crystal clear. You can't you can't dodge it. You can't game it. You, you're almost required. You're incentivized. That is really cool. Uh, and still, did did you get any pushback from your stakeholders when you first launched it? No, and that I mean that was when Brad Feld was initially uh, in the throes of closing a financing round, and he was so supportive. He was like, "This is awesome," because he also had off grid quarterlies, and so I knew that. I had the right investor when he's when I was contemplating and I ran it by him and he's like, absolutely, hundred percent. This is gonna be awesome. Screaming from the rooftops. I'm like, okay, cool. Wow. And have you seen other companies pick up on that? Yeah, yeah. A few companies have uh, cloned it and uh, I think believe attributed us. Uh, Moz was one of the first to pick it up. They gave like three thousand dollars. I think Buffer does something. I can't remember the exact amount. A handful of others. I should probably start a list because a lot of folks are doing something similar. I wanted to ask you one thing I heard you say on an interview was that you've changed your kind of relationship with the concept of control over time. So, you know, in my 20s, I was a control freak about every little detail of a business and everything else. And now <laughs> I realize so much is outside of our control. In fact, I'm not sure anything's in our control. I have sort of developed this a deterministic, multiverse theory that's sort of interesting, but it's it's kind of like this instance of this simulation, like I don't think there's any control. I think all the conditions were set, and there's just infinite number of simulations going on. <laughs> so why do we care, right? Uh, just let it flow. Uh, life will be a lot better. Uh, what happens, happens. And just kind of do your thing every day. It doesn't really matter. So maybe that's fatalistic. Maybe people can't accept that. A lot of people struggle when I explain that to them. But uh, I've just sort of, the world is going to have its way with you. I think also, I meditate on daily, you know, what's the worst that could happen, right, uh, other than my own death? I just meditate on it until I realize I could be homeless on the streets of Stockholm and be totally content with myself and my life. And all those fears melt away. Surrender to them. Did you always feel that way about kind of being homeless and content on the streets of Stockholm, which is a beautiful place probably if you're going to pick one. If you're going to be homeless, be in Stockholm, right? No, I, I certainly did. I mean, I think control or trying to seize control is usually in response to a threat. People don't realize that often, but 
you're trying to control a situation, trying to control an outcome because you're afraid that it's going to harm you. Right. And, you know, I didn't have that self-awareness of like, why do I have to do these detailed plans and all this stuff, which is really just a fear response. So getting comfortable with whatever you're actually afraid of, it's useful to mitigate your control response. How do you, though, as a CEO, you're not expected to control outcomes, but you probably need to forecast revenue numbers and and things like that and try to control your way to them. Uh, I guess, how do do you take this completely deterministic multivariate uh, scenario analysis? uh, Hey, let's add virtual world that we're living in uh, with the kind of Q4 revenue targets. Yeah. I mean, you know, my approach to it is like, okay, I'm still in this job. I'm still programmed to do what I'm programmed to do. (laughs) And I still am playing within a set of parameters inside of this system, which, okay, yeah, I provide a budget variance to the the board and our investors and the banks and everything's like that and budget forecasts. And I I always take those approaches as uh, completely probabilistic. So we probabilistically budget. So we actually have parameters say, okay, we we think probabilistically there's you know this probability and that we'll hit this number and this probability will hit this number and you know and then we always use the phrase around here there's a non-zero probability that X will happen but we don't speak in absolutes right that's that, that's where I think people get hung up is they speak in absolutes and that's just not I mean, that's not life uh, I share a personal story with you much of which has been uh it was in my jerry colonna podcast but it's kind of been something that i've been reflecting on for many years now for me that fear was of ultimate mortality my own mortality and so much uh, like so much of my 20s because like you i had a very kind of outsider-ish teenage kind of elementary school years where i was you know pretty clever but that's about it and I then, in my 20s, I learned finance. I learned, you know, how to make web pages. I learned, I learned lots of things, and I guess they'd be called skills. I read a ton of white papers, and I felt that little by little, with you know, success with gigantic air quotes, um, things and life felt more in my control. You know, whether it's the confidence to walk up to uh, a woman at a bar, to the confidence to quit your job and you know go to a different company, and then I kept and I guess I subconsciously I didn't know I was doing this, but now in hindsight I realized that I would just consistently double down on kind of control rewarding behaviors and i saw it a lot with kind of the fervor with which i exercise because to me that was a way of controlling mortality and it's it's very like it's just like it's incorrect um it's but but you could get in these ways where where you you know like if i work out x you know 90 minutes a day with this level of intensity and drink this green smoothie and do that that i will live longer which again to your kind of variance and probabilistic model absolutely but in an absolute model nfw yeah. Okay. I mean, I, I have a lot. I, mean, I live in Boulder, right? So my response to that is the probability that you're on your bike or you're running and you get hit by a truck or a car is actually pretty high. I know lots of people that that, that happens to, and then they end up at the hospital or you're climbing and you, you know, so like, so you have to balance all the parts of the equation and realize it's totally outside your control. You never know. 
and and letting go of you know it's it, you don't let go of something like that but being more at peace with it is uh really one of the more liberating um parts of you know of, of my self-exploration and and my self-care so and perhaps myself my you know maybe it's the narrative i'm telling myself right it's the story i'm telling myself that hey there's actually like trillions of parts out there in different instances of simulation so if this one dies don't worry you're still living somewhere else a little that would be like a programmable buddhism right <laughs> right exactly simulation three explains a lot yeah it's always fun to have these conversations with people who are deeply analytical but have also um kind of explored and cracked open the spiritual well uh, another question for you, uh, one that I ask a lot of our guests, um, what does success mean to you personally? Well, uh, that answer has changed over the years. And my wife and I actually did, recently did some work around this in terms of the, the vision setting and the value setting for our family, which sounds strange, but if you think about it, every company does this. What's our vision? What's our purpose? What's our, what's our, what our values? And so we actually document them as a family. And so I'll answer from a family perspective is, uh, you know, we just want to help, you know, make relationships better in the community. Uh, we want to have great children who live our family values uh, that we've written down. And we have certain metrics from legacy financial standpoint that we want to hit that we believe we can pay it forward with charitable donations and things like that. So we actually have some three-year and 10-year goals. And we've actually quantified the financial part. And then the personal side, we've actually articulated what kind of life we want to live and what are the metrics that mean we're hitting that life in terms of appropriate family time and engagement. Do you feel that to this point your life has been successful? Yeah, I would say so. I think uh, if I passed away today, I would, uh, I would be okay with that. Thank you for sharing that. I've been reading um, about f halfway through a book. You probably have heard of it called the seven the seven principles for a healthy marriage. I think it's called. Uh, I've heard of it. I haven't read it. Oh, so so what you just described is kind of one part of that book, and the book I, I highly um, recommend it um, because it's not I actually the the typical type A. The way I found that book and the way I would like pick up that book is uh, it was one of the most recommended books from the most popular class at Stanford Business School. Uh, it's a class called Interpersonal Dynamics, or it gets abbreviated as touchy-feely, but it's a class on vulnerability, like on leadership and vulnerability. But in that book is just, there's so much about what makes a healthy relationship, right? And uh, th there is these concepts of self-awareness, uh, self-awareness of emotional intelligence, like we talked about at the beginning. How well do you know your partner, right? The the love they, he calls it love maps, you know. So the self-awareness work that you talk about and that we've talked about, you know, how how could you answer that those questions on behalf of your spouse, and how could your spouse answer those questions on your behalf? And it just, you know, the, the TLDR that I've taken away from it so far is that anything I read in that book is super intuitive. It's like, of course, you know, if your spouse is having a really stressful day, it's very important for you as a husband to text them during the middle of the day to check in on how that day is going. I know for damn sure that I'm really bad at that. When I'm in my kind of 12-hour work zone, it's like only in an emergency. 
you know, I'm heads down. I'm a chunker. I'm a GTD guy. So I've got like these whole ways of working, uh, which I'm sure you can relate to some of. But these little things. And then the other part I take away, it's like it's it's really like um, compound interest for a shared emotional bank account because those little things compound. And I think the thing that was new new to me, again, very obvious because you know the metrics, right? 50% of marriages in the US and divorce is that the headwinds for marriage are actually very strong. They're, they're against you. And one thing that lays it out really clearly that, that you might be able to relate to is that for 67% of couples, happiness plunged, the marriage satisfaction plunges within the first year of the first kid. Yeah. <laughs> is that low? Oh, yeah. <laughs> and, and I don't know. I don't know how, how you felt, it, but I've always had this kind of like, you know, when I decided to become an entrepreneur, it's like 95% of entrepreneurs fail. It's like, yeah, but I'm not going to, I'm going to be in the 5%. And 67% of this, well, I, I'm going to be in the 33. It's like, I, that book made me realize, like, I am not, uh, I'm not special. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, and you have to be intentional. So when I, when, you know, I, I, you share about building, you know, shared values and vision statements, it's like that intentionality, the same way that I would assume you apply it with your red, yellow, and green personally and with your management team. It's like that, that stuff. And that's why it's not a book on marriage. It's just a book on life. <laughs> and then I guess... The last question, and, and then I want to hear the exciting things about um, on your end, on your company's end. But what is something that you're um, struggling through right now, be it uh, personal or, or professional? Yeah, I mean, I think that what I'm struggling with right now personally is obviously with a 10 week old, you know, balancing that equation and then trying to keep my wife. And myself both afloat. <laughs> um, uh, I think you know, making sure we actually take the time for self care, both of us, because there was just. Now I look back and go, "Wow, only one kid. We had infinite amount of time." And now with two kids, there's okay. We just went from two on one to man to man defense, and it's a lot more challenging. So, me and my wife have instituted a, like a weekly uh, meeting cadence where we set aside 90 minutes for a family meeting and we track our scorecard as a family. We track our rocks. We track our to-dos, issues that have come up. We resolve them as a dedicated time. And that's certainly helped alleviate a lot of pressure. And then, uh, you know, professionally, you know, it's sort of the interesting moment. I, uh, I wear a couple hats at Full Contact, um, two uh, discrete ones. One is what, what I call the visionary and two is the integrator, and the visionary is very much this creative brain, uh, R and D, emotion, culture, you know, big relationships, that sort of thing. And then the integrator is this logical, uh, you know, operator, prioritization, uh, accountability, follow through. And you know, often the big mistake companies make is not separating those functions, and it's really hard to do both. Uh, most visionaries can do the integrator function for a period of time until they realize it's exhausting them and then they are not doing the visionary activities that really move the needle for the business. So I'm I'm grappling with that. Often there's a CEO or president hire that's made, but I've got extremely close relationships with all my leadership team and we've we have a good structure and it's kind of working pretty well. So do you screw up the business by bringing somebody like that in? Uh, or do you dramatically accelerate it? So I'm that's one of my big rocks for the next three or four months is to to come up with my 2018 plan for what am I going to do with that? I'm in two boxes, and I, I shouldn't be in two boxes. 
Got it. And um, maybe it's just a, maybe it's just a relinquishing control, right? <laughs> maybe uh, Bart in an alternate universe can kind of step in. That's right. We call it letting go of the vine. My team doesn't think I'll be able to relinquish it because I enjoy it so much, right? And uh, I'm like, oh, okay. So how do you just let go and then make sure you're you still have enough things in the world to do? And maybe that's how I spend more time with my family. We'll be rooting for you from uh, from from the sidelines. So, yep. Uh, what's exciting from the company side um, that you, that you want to share share with us? I, I just got the upgrade, so I'm pretty I'm pretty pumped about that. And um, but would love to hear what's what's on the what's exciting at the full contact level. Yeah, I mean, uh, we just when you say you got the upgrade, uh, maybe you got a premium upgrade, or you just got the new full contact Gmail. The for Gmail, yeah. Okay, cool. Yeah, I mean that was that's pretty exciting because it incorporates our. You know, the sidebar extension in Gmail when you're doing your email incorporates some of the team capabilities, which we haven't publicly fully launched. But if you work on a small team, you can have team notes and team tags on people. Uh, sort of the super, super lightweight, simple, you know, uh, relationship management system. So that's super exciting. We also have announced um, and got a lot of early adoption of our of our plat- on our platform, our version three of our platform, which has push subscriptions. It has what we call data packs, which are different data partners have actually partnered with us, and you can actually deliver, you know, social affinities or you know uh, demographics or firmographics or whatever type of data you want. It's almost like an iTunes for data through the full contact delivery platform. Uh, you can subscribe a la carte, so that's incredibly exciting. A lot of a lot of our customers are super excited about that. Uh, so you know that's what we've got going on right now, and. And I'm looking forward to you know the next wave, the next year. We've got an amazing product engineering team in place, and uh, and uh, you should see some news from us shortly on the, on that front as well. I, I'm, they'd kill me if I released too much; they have to butt me up. But uh, those are the exciting things I can talk about. And um, last question: What's your favorite ice cream? My favorite ice cream is half baked by Ben and Jerry's. I, I'm a big ice cream person, and so New York. I, didn't, I presumably Denver too is just going through this boom, kind of like the craft beer boom. It's the craft ice cream boom, and so we just have so it's like it's so hard to choose <laughs> when when I go down uh, to the grocery store. But there's a few cool New York brands that uh, I'm, I'm going to try to get some that mirror the half baked uh, <laughs> flavor uh, into into your fridge on, on behalf of the of the Rad Reads community. Well, we, we are a big ice cream household, so my wife will be like incredibly thankful, so will I. Awesome. Well, Bart, thank you so much. Thank you for, for, for taking the time. Thank you for just for, for being so candid and, and open. And for, for personally, I think a lot of my work as the creator of Rad Reads is deeply, deeply facilitated or or um, just made awesome by what you guys have built and so uh, so I really mean it that it's really been an integral part of, of what I've built so thank you for that as well awesome thanks for having me much love and gratitude thank you for listening to the rad awakenings podcast for more information on all things rad including our weekly email newsletter please visit us at radreads.co This podcast is a labor of love and funded by the community's generosity. And if you're interested in supporting us, please join us as a patron by visiting patreon.com slash radreads. And of course, leaving a five-star review always goes a long way. Thanks again, and until next time.